Morning. Morning. I invite you to open your Bibles and locate the New Testament book by the name of Titus. uh, We're going to start in chapter 1 and verse 1, and we're going to find that in your pew Bible on page 998. It's possible the whole book is on one page, actually. It is one of the itty-bitty books of Scripture, but uh, even though it's brief, it's very, very meaty. Today, the first several messages of several messages from a series from Titus. The title of the series is called Plant Church Repeat. Today, we're going to be just reading the first five verses in the opening chapter, so I invite you to stand with me in honor of the word and the giver of the word. Hear now the truth. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are divine and yet you are with us. You've made us family. You have bestowed upon us a new name, a new future, and a new hope. And while we tarry here in the brevity of our own individual lives, we need you. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes that you might illumine the scripture for us. Give us peace that we might be content in how you have called us to this moment. May we honor you as we receive your blessing. For Jesus' sake, amen. You may be seated. Your elders kindly have invited me to join your worship this morning, and I consider it an honor to do so. Whenever presented the opportunity to open the word of God and to speak in a gathering such as this, it's... It's a marvel to be able to speak about God, his will, his word, and uh, I consider it a real privilege. And so it is to be taken seriously. And just like all those who have stood here before me, I do. Interestingly, I have known your newly retired senior pastor for about 30 years, and there are some in your regular fellowship that Carol, my wife who's back here, Carol and I have known for over 40 years. Uh, Carol and I met uh, Kenny and Keith Crosswhite 45 years ago, so that must have made Keith about six. Um, there are many, uh, many familiar and friendly faces here this morning, and hopefully uh, we can make some brand new relationships, e- even today, just by a result of us being here. So I look forward to greeting some of you, especially after the service. And now may, uh, I, I want to thank you, congregation, for uh, welcoming us into your fellowship, and May our Lord Jesus be lifted up and his spirit fill our hearts in these coming moments. 
Now let's enter into God's story together. The Christian life is a work in progress. You're right. Every life is a work in progress. And that's always true. The life of every Christian congregation is a work in progress as well. To move forward, to improve, to, to achieve some objective. These are things that many think are signs of progress in this unfolding life of ours. And regardless of your definition of the word progress, I, if someone really cares about making a positive change, I think there are some questions that are worthy of asking on a regular basis. How am I doing? How's my church doing? What does progress even look like in my own life? What, what does it look like in the life of my congregation? And what metrics do I use to judge? I, uh, for years, actually for decades, I, I've been persuaded. I really believe that both in the physical world and in the spiritual realm, this is what I believe. If it is alive and healthy, and nourished properly, it will grow. If it's alive and healthy and nourished properly, it will grow. Most often, I will append two words to the end of that statement to complete it. It will grow and reproduce. Healthy growth and reproduction seem excellent measurements uh, by which to test the vitality of any living organism or any particular person or any local congregation. I think 20 centuries ago at the very dawn of the church age, those were measurements that were important and I think they're still important today. And since sustaining church growth and health always requires, hear me, always requires good leadership and a thoughtful and a prayerful strategy, welcome to the book of Titus. It's been a very long time since I opened this book to teach or preach in a formal setting, but it was a marvel. It was the summer of 2001. I was in the southern part of Siberia and in a much smaller room and in a much less comfortable environment. I got to speak with others about the truth from the book of Titus relating to church, church planting, church health, church growth, church multiplication. And I got to speak to people who were between the ages of 15 and 27. Every single one of them was a leader in their church. One young man was 19 and he was the pastor of two congregations and did not have a Bible. Do you think they were eager to hear what God might have had to say about what they were doing and what this was for the future of their Siberia? When I left there some weeks later, I, I crystallized a thought in my head, which was never said out loud. But I could see the face of every one of those hundred and some young people saying, we are going to win Siberia to Christ or die trying. Oh, they wanted to learn dynamics of church planting and church health and growth. And so here in, in the book of Titus, we encounter some of God's wisdom regarding Nurturing and multiplying local congregations. Here we, 
We learn the necessity that every, every church needs to have good leadership. And so those who are at the helm have to be prayerful, thoughtful, humble people. And here we are introduced in just these first five verses to what I'm going to call the mentor, the minister, and the mission of sustainable Christianity throughout the island of Crete a very long time ago. Honestly, in reading through just these five verses, this is true, I identified 16 different concepts that I think individually deserved a sermon all unto themselves. But I've coalesced it down into these three M's, thinking that I could still do justice to the scripture and allow us to leave this uh, service before 3 p.m. <laughs> yeah, that, that could have gotten an amen, I'm sure. <laughs> Conservative Bible scholars tend to suggest that ancient principles like revealed here in the book of Titus and elsewhere dealing with congregational vitality are still applicable in the church today. I think that's probably right. With that said, let's look into the passage, seeking the mind, the heart, and the will of God relating to the building of the church, the spread of Jesus Christ Christianity, maybe even in the Midlands of South Carolina in our lifetime. First, the mentor. We begin with a really rather remarkable individual known as Paul the Apostle, formerly Saul of Tarsus. He is a self-confessed Hebrew Pharisee with like a, a super Jewish resume. He had checked all the boxes in the Hebrew traditions. He was a leader among leaders. He was someone who was highly esteemed. And to put just a little bit of context into our conversation, this letter, this epistle, was written to Titus somewhere after Paul had been released from his first Roman imprisonment. Very likely during a period between AD 63 and AD 66, but thankfully it's not necessary to have a precise date to comprehend the content of what is here in this epistle. At the very outset, Paul identifies himself as a servant, a sent one, that's the meaning of apostle, as a preacher, and as a writer of this letter. Of course, God is the author. Ultimately, God is the author of all scripture. But he has chosen throughout the centuries to select certain ones, people of earth, to communicate his message to the cultures of the world. Our very own Paul was asked to perform that function and given that call numerous times himself. Now, Saul had been an avowed enemy of the church movement that had coalesced after the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. But as a, a gifted public speaker and someone with an enviable education and a very long list of high and lofty accomplishments, he was someone who, just by the power of his presence, could refute many of the claims that were being made by this Jesus movement. He could do it by citing Hebrew tradition, which he knew inside and out. And by virtue of his position on the religious council, he was able, actually, 
and empowered to persecute the church, to persecute the, the Christ followers. And, and once he actually cast a vote to do so, that was in Acts 26. Now, I may have sounded very confident in saying that, but I'm not. As far as I could tell, and I've looked through the scripture, I don't think there's a place where it says Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. I also don't think there's a place where it says he wasn't. But one thing for sure, it was well established in the Hebrew tradition and in the leadership, only members of the Sanhedrin were allowed to vote. So I think Paul probably was a member of that august group which had aligned 100% against this nascent church that was being developed. Now Paul, no, Saul, wholeheartedly committed himself to the eradication of the sect. Anything he could do, he was going to do. And he proved a very worthy opponent until he didn't. Saul became Paul. Paul gloriously was saved while actually pursuing believers, carrying authority with him to put them to death. That was his goal. That was his task. Jesus interrupted his murderous plan. And he was gloriously saved. And almost immediately, Jesus, in a vision, gave him a sense of what he would have to suffer for the sake now of going 180 degrees away from being the prime persecutor of the church to now her protector. And it's exceeding grim, the list of things he was to suffer. And he actually did suffer so many things because of that call. The hardships that he went through, we can scarcely imagine anyone even surviving. Just one or two of them. His were multiple. Paul truly lived and he died in service to his king Jesus. And he did so as he identifies himself in this text as a doulos, a slave. The lowest form, actually this word means the lowest form of bondservant in the whole empire. Someone who had no claim to privilege or, or rights or any say. As a bondservant who was completely indentured to a mission. And the way he used, Paul used this word in this text, it really kind of indicates he willingly chose to take upon himself that title in order that he might be less and his mission might be central and more and he would serve a higher master than himself. And I think repeatedly, despite the hardships, Paul humbly served to bring honor and glory to his master, no matter what the loss or the trouble that he had to endure. He suffered greatly to fulfill his calling. In 2 Corinthians 12, you can read about some of the difficulties he had and how he even identified a thorn in his flesh. Something that was limiting his ability to move about freely and, and, and speak eloquently. And I, I don't know exactly what it was that was his thorn, his agony. Maybe it was something physical. Might have been as a result of his encounter with Jesus. Perhaps his eyes were weak. Perhaps he who had been such 
a vocal speaker of truth in the public realm. Maybe, maybe he developed a stutter. I don't know. Perhaps it was an emotional struggle that he was going through. Because at his core, he sensed a great disappointment that he was not reaching Jews for Jesus as he had hoped. He was in agony over that. But one thing I do know for sure, whatever it was, and there may have been multiple thorns, he would have been humbled just to call it a thorn. Whatever those things were, maybe it was a demon from Satan. But that demon from Satan had to go past the throne of God first in order to trouble Saul, to trouble this new Paul. And so God was superintending what was going to happen in and ultimately through this new man, Paul the Apostle. He said actually there in that text in 2 Corinthians, for in weakness I am strong. Do you ever feel that way, really? It sounds kind of like a platitude will tell people when they're feeling particularly weak. Paul was weak, who had been strong. But he was filled with the Holy Spirit of God and the call that God had placed upon his life. And so he said, I have all the strength necessary to do everything God wants me to do. So do you. He had an encyclopedic knowledge of theology. I mean, just, just in verses one through three, which is just a hello, how are you kind of thing. He filled it with theology. Those are some of the things that each one deserves a sermon by itself. But as an encyclopedic knowledge of theology, he, he faced perils and pleasures with what's known as equanimity. It just didn't bother him. He, he knew he was on mission, and he was on mission to the very end of his life. Paul was an honorable servant who placed his master first. Not coincidentally, 13 of the 27 New Testament books are attributed to this one man. God working through this one man to speak to us today in the 21st Christian century. That's high praise of the word. And that's what Paul would have said were he here. Well, no one was better suited, I think. No one was better selected to be able to then pour himself and guide and encourage this young pastor with a, a very large and difficult task placed before him. Who was that man? That was the minister. Titus was a Greek-speaking Gentile, meaning he was not of a Hebrew lineage. He may well have been from the city of Antioch. He might have been a citizen from there. And, but he's clearly the recipient of Paul's letter and is stated so. And yet in addition to this current passage in a book that actually bears his name, we, we don't know a great deal about him, but everything we do know about him is in the books of Galatians and 2 Corinthians. And although he's absent from many of the, the New Testament listings of the, the usual characters, it can't be said that he wasn't important. He was certainly important. You can't deny that he was a trusted friend and co-worker of Paul. And Paul had likely introduced him to faith in Jesus many years before the writing of this letter. I get the feel from this and some other things about Titus in Galatians and, and 2 Corinthians that he was sort of Paul's go-to guy. 
I need something done. Now, you know there are people in your sphere, whether it's in business or education or your neighborhood or whatever. There are some people when a situation comes up, you say, this situation is so important, we have to send so-and-so. Contrarily, you also have people in those same circumstances where you say, this thing is so important, we can't send so-and-so. Titus was the one that was going to be sent to a hard place to do a hard job for who knows how long. The scriptures do tell us, though, that these two men were together in Antioch, in Jerusalem, in Corinth, and obviously on the island of Crete. Where that's, that's where the elder left the younger to do the work that was yet to be done. The ordering and equipping of the, the infant fellowships that were spreading all across that very large island. I've been only to the very northern tip of that island, but you get a feel for in the middle of the Mediterranean. Here's this giant expanse of land. And there were little villages all over the place back in this day. And they sprung up with congregations. I'm going to talk about that in a while. Now, while the book of Acts doesn't actually use Titus by name, it doesn't specifically indicate that he was part of any particular uh, organized ministry apart from this, he may well have been in Acts 15, uh, verse 2, among the people called the others who had gone with Paul and Barnabas from Antioch on the occasion of the Jerusalem Council of Elders. The, uh, the primary issue being addressed at that council, which was so important in the day, was whether or not um, Gentile converts to Jesus had to submit themselves to the religious rituals of the Jews. Whether or not specifically they had to undergo the rite of circumcision to qualify as full members of the way, which is how the church was known initially. Interestingly, Titus served as what could only be said a great, um, a test case, really, in their midst, because he himself was an uncircumcised Gentile who genuinely possessed the Spirit of God. In fact, there was pressure brought against Paul and Titus at that very gathering and before it. Pressure put on Paul circumcise your your little protege. Make sure he matches up with our expectations. And Paul pushed back with all of the energy of his being. No, I will not make him submit to that. Must have been something that he'd said. Because Paul knew, absolutely knew and internalized. He understood the difference. Even though being cajoled by some of his best friends to make this happen, he knew that grace was more powerful than tradition. And he was unwilling to have his protege submit because of the wishes of others to an ancient ritual. Now, ultimately, the wise uh, delegates there established the doctrine of freedom from the Mosaic law for, for the Gentile believers. And at that moment, with that stroke, they gave full inclusion into the church of Jesus Christ without submitting to any of the rites. And that consensus came about in large measure because of the apostle Peter, who spoke passionately, addressing the council, saying, I have in my own ministry many Gentiles upon whom God has poured out his spirit, as well as the Jews who are following Jesus. When they professed, they received the same gift. That's what Peter argued. 
He must have been pretty forceful. But imagine the very presence of Titus in the midst of the proceedings. Himself, a Gentile, uncircumcised believer. Simply by being there as living proof, I, I think he helped persuade those, those groups to do the right thing because he spoke whenever he did and whenever he showed up. Titus was an example of how God, as in Ephesians, has torn down the dividing wall between the Jews and the Gentiles now because there has been this inauguration of a new thing, the church of Jesus. He visibly represented the hope of heaven, which had only recently been made known beyond the limits of national Israel. And it came about because of Christ's sacrificial death and his bodily resurrection, which was unheard of. In unity with his mentor, I believe our friend, our minister friend Titus, walked in faith And I think he was unashamed of the gospel because it was and is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also the Gentile. Salvation for Paul. Salvation for Titus. Salvation for all whom God calls and will trust in Jesus Christ. In due time, the apostle James rose as the moderator to conclude that council and to seal the deal, perhaps, by judiciously quoting from the prophet Amos in chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. I'll read these for you. Can you imagine being in that surrounding? History is being made. James stands to say this from Amos. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuilt it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. No longer just ethnic descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are going to have the assurance of eternal life. Oh no. People from all nations become equals in the church of the risen Christ, and every tribe of earth is now welcome into the fellowship of the Redeemer. That's why we are here today. And orthodoxy was firmly established that day. At the conclusion of this letter, Paul is going to invite, just request that uh, Titus meet him in Nicopolis, which is a Western Greek port city in order that they might spend the winter together, it seems. Uh, It's possible that this reflects both the strong bond that was established between these two men, and it might also speak to the temporary nature of the younger man's mission on the island of Crete, after which time he would rejoin the elder and plan some more ministry opportunities among the Gentiles throughout the whole empire. At hand, however, was the work that was necessarily to be done on that island. And what was that exactly? That's the mission. We've met the mentor. We've met the minister. What was the mission? And it's the least amount of verbiage in our text today. It's just verse 5. Christian congregations existed on the island of Crete at the time of this letter being written, clearly. Now, there are several explanations for their existence. Despite a 
I think, an absolute lack of biblical specificity about any organized mission trip that went there. There's none of those for Paul, and there's no mention of Crete being a, a target for that kind of ministry. But nevertheless, the churches were there. I think we need to understand why. We ought not forget, we must consider the remarkable expansion of the church after that, that amazing, pivotal Pentecost experience years before when, when, when people from all nations, tribes, and tongues, seemingly, especially Jews from all over the empire, came together in Jerusalem and they saw, they were witnesses to the Holy Spirit descending as if tongues of fire and inaugurating the new covenant church of Jesus Christ in their sight. Everyone heard and understood in their own language what was being said. Oh, that'll impact you. Acts chapter 2 makes it absolutely certain that Cretan Jews were there among the converts at that Pentecost experience. Well, sure they were. In large measure, all of those who received a baptism into Christ at that event, they were just excited about their new faith and they were willing freely to share the benefits of this salvation, the forgiveness of sin and the completeness of life that comes only through Jesus Christ. They were willing to share that regardless of their or any of their hearers' background or, or heritage. So the contagion of, of divine grace spread pretty quickly throughout the empire as those pilgrims traveled home and to regions beyond. Another explanation for the existence of those congregations in Crete is that while on his so-called mission or journey to Rome, which was after the three missionary journeys, Paul may have spent sufficient time on the island to evangelize many persons when his, his prison ship put in at the port of Fair Havens seeking safe harbor from storm. Although Acts 27 does not provide any confirmation of that idea, this, this option has to exist, I think. And we'd be wrong to just discount it because of silence in the scripture. I don't believe that silence in the scripture absolutely means that something like that didn't happen. Paul did, we know, take advantage of every opportunity he was presented, large and small, and as a prisoner on a ship going into port for a very short time, I suspect he did win some people to Jesus. Maybe they were the virus that spread there with joy and good news. What we do know for certain, though, is that at some point in early New Testament history, Paul and Titus were together on the island of Crete. Otherwise, this epistle makes no sense at all. I'm landing on this one because it's consistent with logic and I think it is almost impossible to refute. It works for me and I think how better than to explain the text which speaks of Paul leaving Crete in the hands of his protege Titus. They must have been there together and they probably certainly shared a common understanding of the work that was to be done. What did that mean exactly? Number one, these are two things stipulated in the text. Putting what remained in order. And number two, appointing elders in all the congregations. Those are the two things that are listed. 
as a, uh, a younger man, I made my living at various times being, well, I, made, I had quite a few pursuits actually, but I, I was a truck driver, I was a landscaper, I was a carpenter, and I was a salesman. Not all at the same time. There was, however, one element of each one of those careers that overlapped the others, and it was this. When the job was done, it was done. Simple. Loads were delivered, yards were transformed, buildings were erected, and deals were signed. That's it. It's over. Go home. Now, without meaning to shock you or underestimate your awareness of such things, I can say with 100% certainty that the job of a pastor is never done. Never done. <laughs> Do you recall my mentioning earlier on that the life of every Christian congregation is a work in progress? Oh, yeah. Well, that's never done either. Unless the congregation, for some reason, disappears, for whatever reason, it will continue to provide job security for everyone who ministers to real people in the name of Jesus. It can be tiring, messy, and more wonderful than words can express. But the work of the ministry never, ever ends. What do you suppose then was the first order of business for Titus on that big island with lots of brand new believers who probably were pretty messy? Well, was it to address some heresy that had grown up? Was it to to win more souls to Jesus? Was Titus to discipline some of the people who were publicly sinning? Was, was he to restore some unity that had been violated? Was he to arrange the chairs differently? I don't know. I really don't. But I have a pretty good idea. And actually, so do you. What needed pastoral oversight here? in this fellowship in 1974 when this church was planted? What needed pastoral ministry last week? Probably the very same thing or things that will require it one year from now. What exactly was Titus responsible to put in order on Crete? I think based on verse five, I'm gonna move past item number one and go to number two. I think it was probably centered on his second task, which was appointing elders in every town. Sure, the chapters to follow, we're gonna to read together here. We're gonna hear about some of the pastoral duties that Titus had. Some of them were unique and, and specific to his situation. Others were kind of generic as a pastor. And I, and I realize that when I say his, his chief work would have been to appoint elders, but I think in the grand scheme of things, I'm convinced that his preaching and his teaching and his counseling and his training all were oriented towards preparing trustworthy elders to take over the leadership of all the congregations and to plant new ones. Couldn't you hear those words coming from Paul to Titus? Prepare the church. Multiply it. Seems likely that both matters addressed in verse 5 were one in spirit and unified in that pastor's calling because they certainly are today. 
When your next senior pastor, who may not have to change his parking spot, takes his place here, I imagine he will be expected to finish what has been left undone and to train the officers to lead the congregation with integrity into the future. I certainly hope so. He will have to model the qualities he hopes to instill in those that he trains, and he's going to have to rely upon God to see him through his tenure among you. That's what your associate and assistant pastors are doing right now. At some point, other men will follow them. And another. And another. And others after them. The work will not be done. I say the work of a local congregation, this local congregation, the job to be done here spiritually will never be done until Jesus returns or you all move to Tahiti. There's going to be a need for Jesus in the midst and there's going to have to be someone who's ready and trained to be able to do that. That was Titus back then. In the world of computer science, not my world, There is a concept taught early in the curriculum known as the shampoo algorithm. You computer science people know what I'm alluding to. It's based upon one of the most simple and successful marketing devices of the entire 20th century. Have you ever read these words when you were standing in a store aisle or more likely in your shower stall? Lather, rinse, repeat. You have. The addition of that single word, repeat, to the instructions printed on shampoo bottles about 100 years ago now almost doubled sales of the hair cleanser products from several of the providers. One word. Why computer science? Well, computer scientists are made aware of this shampoo algorithm because if followed exactly, It creates an endless loop of repetitive actions. Kind of like this. Lather, rinse, repeat. Lather, rinse, repeat. Lather, rinse, repeat. And apparently in cyber world, that's an important thing. I can only imagine why. But I do offer to you this morning, and with respect to the people who know better in science, I offer this analogy for the church of Jesus Christ. Plant church. Repeat. We'll talk about these things again because I've been invited back in two weeks to continue this series in the book of Titus, and I'm really grateful for the opportunity. Frankly, for a a good while, (laughs) I wondered if I would ever have the privilege of this pulpit again because the last time I spoke here was 1988. (laughs) 34 years is a pretty lengthy interval, don't you think? I imagine the next 14 days are going to go by pretty quickly, and I hope to see each one of you then. In the meantime, I want all of us to ask ourselves the healthy growth questions. How how am I doing? How's my congregation doing? Are we planting new seeds of faith in our community? Are we working to replant the church, this church, continually? Something to think about. And now, since we're all eager to have the Lord's word and his work be accomplished among us, 
I'm going to ask you to join me in prayer. Prayer to him whom to know is life eternal. Let's pray. Father, we are here today because of your will and the work you have for us to do in community, on our own, in the future. Lord Jesus, we are those who seek to be servants of yours after the humble example of Paul, after that of Titus. Lord Jesus, the thing is, we couldn't possibly do it in our own strength, nor should we. Because apart from Jesus Christ, we are all lost individuals. The good news is that when you created us and the world itself, you made everything good and there was sweet communion between the creator and his creation and his creatures and there was sweet, sweet love between God and man until there wasn't. The bad news is that our first parents chose in that paradise place to rebel against you. They ate of the tree that was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What good had they lacked? Their only thing to gain was the knowledge of evil, and they did. Since then, our spirits have been dead. We've been born physically alive, but dead ever since the garden. And if the story ended there, it would be dark indeed. But there is other good news. Jesus wanting to have that sweet fellowship with us. The Father, the Holy Spirit, wanting to have us in communion with them, sent the Lord Jesus himself, fully God, who became fully man and dwelt among us. And as he never sinned, even once, but always fulfilled the will of his Father, he did not deserve to bear the punishment of sin, his own or anyone else's. But the great news is he was willing to. Every one of us should die separated from God forever and ever and facing only the torments of our adversary. Yet, because of Christ and his sacrificial atonement, his death in our place to bear our burden of sin and shame and punishment away, he overcame sin at the cross. And days later, he overcame death at the resurrection. Those are the two universal problems of every person who has ever been born, sin and death. Gone. Gone as a threat because of Christ. The amazing news, all you require now, Father, is that we simply believe what you've already done. We get the privilege of looking back to see how Jesus lived, died, lives again, has ascended into heaven, is at your right hand, even as we confessed it moments ago. And you are, Jesus, coming back to judge the living and the dead. May we be the agents by which many who are today dead in their spirit will be alive when Jesus returns. We want to plant the church and repeat and repeat. Plant it more deeply within each one of us, we pray. In Christ's name and for his glory.